You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. My brother, how's it going tonight? Hey, Chris, I'm slammed. I'm seeing more spring breakers than a team of trampoline pen testers. Just tell them to bounce. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. So what can I get you? Well, I'll make it easy on you. I'm going to try that new Gold Miner IPA. Looks like you got on tap down there. Wait, wait, Gold Miner? I don't remember installing that one. Oh, wait, I heard about this. Dude, I think your IoT bar taps are mining cryptocurrency. God, I knew that damn buttneck gangs keep getting in here on my days off. I never can catch them. And this ain't the first time. You know what? You know what? That's it. That's it. I'm switching to Comcast. That would have sick Cujo AI on them fools. Smart move. In that case, don't pour me one of those. Yeah, nah. Nah, I got something better for you anyway. We call it the Midnight Stinger. We throw an ounce of bourbon, an ounce of Frenet Branca, three ounces of lemon juice, three quarter ounce of simple syrup. You build that bad boy in a glass over ice, and you enjoy it. Thanks, man. I'm switching signals. I want to engage in a convo about IoT and product security. Right on. We'll see you next round. I'm here with Tony Reinert, Director of Information Security for Comcast Cable. Tony specializes in product security through the entire software development lifecycle. He also has a strong background in offensive security, conducting and supporting numerous penetration tests and vulnerability assessments. Tony, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you with me at the barcode. Thanks, Chris. Really happy to be here. So if you wouldn't mind, let's just kick things off by having you talk to me about your background, your path through cybersecurity up until your current role at Comcast. Sure. So I started, graduated college back in uh, 2002, and I graduated about two months before the dot-com bubble burst. So the job market was, was non-existent at the time, basically. My degree was in information science and technology. I wanted to you know, write, write computer software. So pretty much like a computer science program I went through. Uh, my uncle got me a job uh, work writing software for the U.S. Navy. And I wrote uh, embedded C++ code for radar systems, which was really cool to work on. Um, pretty neat, you know, the, some, the process control aspect of those and writing the software that, that actually drove a, a real radar uh, was, was really, really cool to work on. I did that for a while. I also wrote some data analysis software that was based in a Java desktop type of programs. And that looked at large data sets also for the Navy. I did that for, for about 11 years. Towards the end of that, kept hearing more and more about cybersecurity, how much that field was growing. Uh, you know, it was a big deal at the time. So I, uh, you know, had a friend who was actually in cybersecurity for a big consulting company. And he said, you know, if you know how to read software code, um, I probably have a job for you. So, so uh, he had, he had me come over, um, two weeks into my job, uh, Sony entertainment got hacked. The big guardians of peace, uh, hack happened. 
Oh yeah. Uh, right. I was basically still going through orientation. That was in the news at the time, if you remember. That was a really big, big deal. Uh, a lot of, a lot of articles, a lot of analysis of that. It was one, one of the big, you know, attacks that people can look back on, like some of the other ones. So I knew I was kind of in the right spot because that really interested me. Uh, the first book I read in cybersecurity was um, "Hacking: The Art of Exploitation," um, which I actually interestingly thought was really easy because I'm like. Geez, this is just buffer overflows. I I used to do this, you know, every day figuring this out. Um, so I, I thought I was in really good shape in cybersecurity. The next book I read was um, Web App Hacker's Handbook, and was going for my GWAP. And things got a little different. I wasn't as familiar with you know HTTP protocol and things like that. So so I had to learn a lot. It was a lot of fun. I really love, um, you know, the the offensive aspects of cybersecurity. Um, did wind up getting my GWAP, got my OSCP as well along the way. Um, like I said, I, I started with a consulting company, uh, worked with a couple cool clients there, really helped them build out uh, some of their vulnerability management programs and secure uh, software development lifecycle programs or SDL or whatever you want to call that, DevSecOps. Um, and then it brought me to this big client I, I came on to called Comcast. Um, started out doing information security for our smart home line of products, um, helping out with their DevSecOps program, you know, just putting a little bit more maturity around it. And for that in area of those products, you know, we had a we have a big stack, right? We have backend servers, we have applications, apps, mobile apps, and we have devices. So there's a lot, lot there uh, to secure. Over time, I, you know, I, I still do that. I also took on a, a role to head up our DevSecOps transformation program. So I help all the teams at Comcast, development teams, help adopt DevSecOps practices, things like uh, using uh, code scanners in their pipelines or making sure they're scheduling the right security practices and assessments while they're building new code. So as we're building new features, we're doing it securely. And... I continue to do that today. So that's kind of where I'm at. Very good. I, I really enjoyed hearing that progression because it sounded like because of your background, you really kind of just morphed into cybersecurity and hit the ground running in a sense, and then just continued learning more and more and, and really interesting topics. Um, yeah. I, I can't, can't recommend more for people to spend 10 years writing software before they get into cybersecurity. I say that jokingly though, because that's probably unrealistic, but you know, back then I had a bit of a career renaissance, but cybersecurity wasn't as big as it is today. You know, we didn't, people didn't go right into cybersecurity as much as they did today. Now you're seeing people that get into cybersecurity first, like we tell them go learn how to code, you know? So I kind of did that in the opposite order. Uh, but the two things do go very well hand in hand together. You can really understand how systems work that lets you understand how to break them or fix them, you know, and vice versa. So, so being able to talk out, a, you know, both those sides is really important for, uh, especially for like secure development. I was going to say, even at the point where if you're doing DevSecOps now, having that expertise or that knowledge or experience helps you with the just the communication and, and the lingo and you're speaking the right language to those developers. Oh, um, absolutely. Yep. So yeah, let's talk about DevSecOps for a moment. 
I think the meaning of DevSecOps really emphasizes the need for better unity among the meaning of the term, which is development, operations, and security. And as we both know, there are often internal challenges within organizations that become problematic trying to achieve this. What are some of the critical aspects to DevSecOps that you find is needed to establish a successful program? Yeah. So you mentioned one already. Being able to kind of talk shop is a big one. Having an appreciation for how software is built, um, you know, independent of security is important. You need to know how your development teams, what their, what their cycles look like. Are, do they build on sprint schedule? Are they agile? Uh, are they waterfall? Um, do they have timeframes, good timeframes in, in, in their plans that you can work against? Or are they in more of a continuous type of, of mode? So, so understanding the team, understanding the terminology that the developers use uh, so that you can relate to them and then ultimately partner better with them is, is really important. Um, also, knowing what they need, you know, the development teams, there's a lot of different tools in, you know, security provider. We have a lot of, of, of tools in our, in our toolbox that we can give them to help make them more secure. So knowing which one is the most important for them and which one they should focus their time on is also important because it comes back to a little bit of a, a return on investment there. You want to, you know, there's a cost for the development teams to implement a security practice or do something more securely. We want to make sure it's something that they can get the most bang for their buck doing. Um, that could be things like uh, training, you know, or uh, looking at their supply chain or patching or or implementing scanning right i mean i mean just look at like we can start maybe i'll take this to back look at like what your developers do they they architect something should we be threat modeling that architecture then they're going to develop something should we be scanning that code and then things like secrets management you know secure build those types of concepts and practices they really go well in the developers if you look at the ops side that's more where they're running the, the, the software, running the servers. Your vulnerability management program is going to come in big there. Uh, if you have a bug bounty program, that's where you want to try to deploy it there. Uh, how are you patching? What type of patching cadence or strategy are you using? Uh, knowing things, a good example is knowing if your developers build on ephemeral infrastructure or not, right? Do they just blow away their environment every time they deploy? Then you're not talking about patching. Then you're talking about you know, just using the right images every time, you know, having secure images to start off with because they're not really going to go into a maintenance window. They're just going to spin up some new ones that are patched. Uh, and then having your, your vulnerability scanning in place, um, you know, scanning, you know, like your Qualys or your Nessus type things to see what, what um, you know, network level vulnerabilities that, that you have there. Um, so it really is, if you think about Agile as this, this circle or this loop that teams go through and they go through all those steps or in waterfall, it's just all the different steps along the waterfall, you know, identifying the security pieces of each one of those um, is really how you build security in and then partnering with your developers um, to do that is important. Uh, another good important thing to do is uh, make sure that what you're asking your development teams to do is planned work, not giving them this, fire drill request that they need to do, which is unplanned work, which they would need to do at the expense of maybe some other development or some other bug fixes. So 
trying to get them to plan the work that you're asking them to do helps them from a capacity perspective. And it also helps from a relationship perspective too. I'm a big fan. I don't know if you ever read the Phoenix project. So it's a book about a development team and all the different asks that they get. They get asked from the compliance team. They get asked from the product team. They get asked from the security team and they all want them to do stuff. And, you know, it's all competing priorities. And that happens with any development team. So what we want to do is make sure when we make that ask, we don't tell them when. We just ask them when they think they can do it. And then we can work with that. So usually the teams are pretty good about doing stuff a couple sprints out or in the future. So if you can wait and it's not like this critical um, vulnerability or some critical passion needs to happen, then you know let them empower them to decide when to do that work. It'll work out better in the long term with the teams because really in another aspect of it, your most if you think of this from a like a vulnerability management perspective or fixing bugs, the most effective remediation team you have is actually developers, right? If you're talking about custom applications, so getting partner with them so that they know when you really need them to do something urgently or when you're doing something that makes them build better software, um, you know, as part of their day-to-day jobs um, helps them plan that. And that really empowers them to, to own their own security decisions too. Yeah. I was going to ask you if the relationship between security and development is aiding them when they're, building code or the inception of code versus after the fact and fixing vulnerabilities and patching. Do you find that it's becoming more of a mindset for them? Is it becoming more natural for them to consider security when building out applications from scratch? If you think of a security vulnerability as just another bug or a defect in the software, the earlier in the process of building that you find it, the cheaper it is to, to fix. So Gotcha. Security is no different than quality in that regard. So if you want to find that defect as, as early upstream as possible, uh, when it's security, then you need to do security activities upstream. Um, so you want to be looking at things in that pre-production aspect. So okay. scanning the code, threat modeling, the, the data flows, you know, do those before you actually get to the operations and the run side. Um, because the cost to fix something after it's already been deployed to production is much greater than it is if you had caught it farther upstream. So that same type of, you know, cost savings or that that quality quality uh, you know, that you can build in, it go it's the same for security too. So you do want to partner with all those people. If it's the team does everything, they do the all full DevOps themselves, you're partnering with one team. Uh, you may be div- partnering with multiple teams, especially well, especially in like a multi-tier architecture, you want to partner with your database team, you want to partner with your operations team, you want to partner with your infrastructure team, and then you want to partner with your application team. So you need to partner with all of them, figure out where they where they fit into that puzzle and that that journey of building software, and then help them secure their piece of it. Understood. Um, so I want to hit on IoT security real quick, and specifically when you look at product security, IoT devices are common now everywhere in every home. And when you're evaluating or testing IoT or smart devices that will ultimately reside in someone's home, could you give me an idea of what that consists of? What are some of the processes that go into it? Is it evaluating protocols? Is it checking for hard-coded credentials? 
I guess, what would be some of the things on that checklist for ensuring IoT devices are secure? So it, everything you mentioned is there. Uh, testing IoT devices and the 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 tactics, the te- techniques, and the procedures you'd look at there are very similar to what you'd be testing for a mobile app or a, something where you you don't control the entire attack service inside your trust boundaries as an organization. So you know your backend servers, you 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 know where they are, you know who has access to them, uh, you know what protocols are coming in and out. Uh, for IoT devices, um, you know the protocols, you know the data, um, you don't know where they are, you know you don't. So there's a physical aspect of it, um, but you do have to look at the protocols, you have to look at the privacy, you have to look at the you know the the different weaknesses that you can have there. Uh, you know, so it's the same thing you do on your servers, uh, but you have to add that physical um, as, aspect of it too. So when you look at your like CVSS scores. You actually have to look at the um, you know network versus adjacent versus local because when you're talking about IoT, we have a lot of local stuff because you need physical access to the device. So you really have to take what you would normally do for your backend servers and your applications, do all that, and then on top of it, add the the physical aspects of the security as well. Uh, access to uh, the ports on the devices. Um, whether through destructive means or not, you know, if a lot of devices will just have like a USB plug coming off of the back of them mm-hmm. and you're like, sure, let me plug in there and see what happens. So a lot of devices will have a USB port on the board that just isn't soldered and wired for, for actual access outside of that. So knowing board schematics, knowing to look what to look for in chips is something you can do to try to gain more access. Um, that's where the destructive part comes in because you're going to be taking the, the, the device apart breaking the plastic, you know, and nowadays these devices are so they're all glued together or, or, um, you know, sonically welded and, and you can't get to them without really cutting them open to see what's inside of them. But then you're just doing the same thing you do against a web app. You're looking for secrets. You're looking for vulnerabilities in the protocols and the way they transmit, or you're looking for, you know, unauthorized access into those devices. Um, and trying to see how that could ultimately lead to, um, access on the back ends of the organizations as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about specific protocols. For example, I've seen attacks on Bluetooth or Zigbee, and that's something you don't immediately consider when performing typical pen tests, right? Really only when you're aware of the type of devices involved. We have to deal with, the, from an attack purpose or an attack surface perspective, there's a lot more to look at when you're talking about IoT than you would be if you're talking about the web or mobile apps, because they pretty much just run on TLS these days. Now, when you get into IoT, we're talking, first, you got to start at the layers, right? If you're talking layer one or layer two, we've got Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, you said Zigbee, that's 802.15.4, which is also Z-Wave, it's also Thread. There's a lot there from the protocol, the, you know, the, the, the physical protocol, layer one and Mac, Mac protocol. Then you'd go up the stack a little bit more, and look at the application layer. And then, you know, when you're talking about IoT, you, TLS is there, but then you've got XMPP, you've got MQTT, you know, you've got a couple other different protocols that are, that are used at that layer to, you know, at the application level. Then you've got the OSs. So you need to know if you're looking at embedded Linux, so you're looking at Android, um, the free RTOS uh, sphere, 
you know, we've got a lot of different OSs you can run on these things as well. Um, and then I forgot chipsets, right? We talk about the, the hardware, you know, because Broadpone is just was just on Broadcom, so you need to know what chips you're running. You talked about Bluetooth. Blueborn was another one that that popped out there. Uh, the big one that a lot of people may know is Crack, and that one was bad because that one was against the Wi-Fi protocol, not against the implementation of the protocol. So then you got to look at that too, the implementation versus the actual protocol um, there there as well. So. All those things can go into different areas you need to to look at uh, when we're talking about security of IoT. Uh, it's just more complex, but at its at the basics, you're still looking at the same things. Is it a vulnerability? Is it applicable to my device or my environment? And what what do I have to do to uh, address that? Got it. Is there a framework or a standard that? device manufacturers should be adhering to? I, I'm not aware of any, but do you, is there any governance around it when they're building out these devices? The, not a lot right now, but uh, NIST has draft standards out um, and we are expecting to start to see a lot more. In the, and when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about in the US. Um, okay. here. There are other countries that have kind of like a nutrition label for IoT that you can look at that show that they've been built with some sort of standards in place. Um, but in the U S we have, we have a little bit of regulation. Um, one big piece is about around the Mirai botnets. Um, California has some laws in place to protect those, uh, which is basically don't use default passwords on your, in your systems. Um, but we are starting to see draft and soon some, some guidance on, on how to, uh, what security should look like for, for, uh, IOT devices. Very good. That, that's good to hear. Has the impact of COVID affected the approach of device testing within remote environments? You know, I can imagine it, it's difficult for product security testers of any industry to be able to mirror a one-to-one -one environment easily when you're doing product testing. I'm sure it has. Um, you know, the you got to physically have the devices a lot to do that, um, or or you need to have a, a test test bed in place with some sort of means to physically actuate them. Um, if you think of something like an Android phone, there's, there's tools you can use to kind of plug into those, uh, you know, over like the ADB port and control them to do some, some functional testing on those. So maybe you have a big wall of, of test equipment like that, that you could maybe access remotely to do that. You know, like maybe you have a jump box back in the office that you could get to and then continue to do your testing remotely if if companies set that up during the pandemic otherwise probably just bringing the devices home with you uh i know personally I've, I've got a bunch of stuff at my house these days not just work stuff but other stuff too that i've been tinkering with um to kind of do some of the stuff we used to do at the office in in the house now um especially i've built out a little bit more of my sdr capabilities in, in, in my house personally uh, than I used to do in the office. And that's part of it too. You know, there's probably a lot of people that would do testing with equipment that they used to have access to that they might not have access to anymore. And that's one of the challenges with, with the IoT space is the need for a lot of, you know, tools. But when we talk about tools, it's not just software you download. It's, it's the, a chip you have to buy or a, a um, you know, some sort of soldering iron or, or a, a Wi-Fi or not a Wi-Fi, a wireless radio you might need 
you know, to do SDR to look at wireless testing. Uh, so access to those is, is also something you need to consider to do the testing uh, because a lot of the, the, the tools we use in cybersecurity testing were adapted from tools that developers used for functional testing, right? Like all the uh, cool SDR equipment we use had a legitimate purpose for the most part when it came out and then people figure out how to do it for, uh, you know, for, for security testing purposes as well. Yeah, interesting. The big long antennas, right? The big yeah. that we all, all have different laying around. Sizes. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I didn't have a. I still don't have a Yagi in my house or anything like that. But um, the antennas, um, or or even the um, the Faraday cages. You know, yeah. I you know a lot of a lot of aluminum foil these days to do <laughs> some of that testing. Well, I guess a benefit would be is that if you are working from home, again, everyone has an Alexa or everyone has an app on your phone. So if they learn how to do traffic analysis, it could be more beneficial just to see what's on your home network and be able to dig into all the devices there versus being in a staged environment where it may be more predictable. There's benefits to both. It's really nice to have a nice clean baseline of traffic to look at but that might not also be realistic traffic that you're that you're looking at so seeing it in the wild or or seeing how it would really work in a more of a you know production environment has its benefits too you're just going to be looking at a lot more noise in that case so got it uh, nowadays you know smart homes and and houses have so many devices connected to their networks that that uh, you can really see a lot going on in there. Now, of course, you can look at source IPs and figure out what device it's, it's coming from, but you know, your Wireshark is going to be discarding a lot of traffic. Um, if you're doing direct captures on like your access point, um, you know, when you're in monitor mode, whatever, then you, you know, unless you've got good gear, you might start to, to lose data and you might have to make those run those captures a couple times. So those types of considerations about the, you know, the test environment, they, they come into play for those. Understood. So I want to switch over to threat intel for a moment. Okay. Using threat data to stay ahead of attackers is extremely important to prevent system compromise. It's also very important to the business as well, but often hard to get a grip on. In your opinion, why is threat intelligence important? And what are some of the ways you have found to effectively identify or uncover malicious tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs? Yeah, so totally agree. Threat intelligence, threat intel is very important for the organization. Um, and I'll just say, I'm going to just talk about like maybe residential or commercial IoT threat intel because industrial IoT is a different space and you know the threat intel over there and things like, and I, I'm not really as well-versed over there, but you'll see threat intel on like a Siemens PLC or something like that. And, and it's a little bit different than what we see in, in more in the, 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 the residential space over here. Um, but you really need it. And we talked about how to do the testing and all the different protocols and the attack surface that we have in IoT. And then the, you have to look at the different attacks and you got to get them from somewhere, right? That's where the threat intel comes from. So it's a lot of looking at articles in the news seeing what you know other devices were under attack and seeing what type of attacks were happened to those uh and then looking at 
the applicability to them, right? Do you run that same protocol? Do you have that same chipset? Do you use that same software? And maybe then you need to adapt the attack, um, to, you know, or the tool or, or whatever was listed in, in the intelligence report and see if it works on your, you know, inventory of, of devices and, and products and services. Mimic what you're seeing in the wild on site to see if you could reproduce it. Absolutely. And, and then that's where you mentioned TTPs. Sometimes you just need to look at the, that, that TTP that was in use in the Intel report and something like, I'll say privilege escalation, right? Oh, they were able to escalate privilege on this device. Like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. do we run that OS? Will that script work on our equipment to do that too? Um, you know, and maybe you might need to like look at the actual script and go, oh, let me change this port or, or change this you know, a couple bits here or make changes API, API call a little bit and then see if it works against your stuff. And that's where for threat intelligence, and I think this is just general, but like having that ability to quickly replay those types of attacks, have the flexibility to replay those attacks really comes in handy. So if you do have like testing run books that you use, maybe you run a common set of cybersecurity tests against devices um, on a regular basis. Um, against known attacks or whatever, maybe you can just quickly adapt those to try something new that you saw in a news article or in in a threat intel report somewhere. I am starting to see more threat intelligence report um, capability coming in for for IoT devices. Um, it's definitely getting um, a lot better, um, you know, as time goes on. Um, but there's still a little bit more of that. You know, you'll still get that article from your friend or something like, "Hey, did you see this?" And you're like, oh, let me go check that out. Um, so we still have to do a lot of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you still need to validate. Earlier, you mentioned bug bounty programs. And I've seen more organizations essentially allowing outside security researchers in to help identify vulnerabilities in zero days. What's your take on bug bounty programs? Is there real value there? Yes, I, I definitely think bug bounty programs are great. They are a great way to expand your coverage, um, not just in scope, but also in techniques. Um, I'm really impressed. It's what um, you can get from the bug bounty community. Uh, everybody brings their specialty areas to your, you know, your program, uh, and you get a lot of good testing fidelity out of that. I just want to caution, you know, any buddy that's looking to get into bug bounty programs, you really need to be prepared. And this comes back to that conversation we had about partnering with your development teams and partnering with your ops teams um, and how to remediate. Because if you open up a bug bounty program and, and you get flooded with findings, you know, first you don't, hopefully you don't get flooded with findings because your product should be pretty secure. But if you do get a lot of findings, you're going to need to close the loop on those um, and handle that volume. And that's where you're remediation team, which is probably also your DevOps team comes in. You want to make sure that they're aware of it. You don't just surprise them with a, a bug bounty that's going to pop up and give them a whole bunch of work. So you should be partnering with them. That's something that the cybersecurity team should not be doing in a vacuum. They should be working with their development teams to make that happen. Um, additionally, if you have third-party aspects of your program where you have you know, maybe Windows, right? Like you might have Windows out there and you want to make sure you know how to go and get that patched from your third-party vendors, um, you need to make sure that you have that process in place too, because you might get vulnerability reports on 
software that you don't own or maintain. So you need to at least have an idea of how that process is going to look as, as you get your bug bounty program uh, ready. And then lastly, uh, I really recommend if you do want to get into a bug bounty program to, to start small in your scope, get that going, uh, close the loop on some of the of reports that come in. And then over time, as you get comfortable, open up the, the aperture of your program to, to start to include more, more attack surface. You know, the, the bug bounty programs are really good at putting exclusions and scope in them. And you should take advantage of that to make sure that you're not biting off more than you can chew. Um, because once you put that program out there, that basically tells everybody, hey, go hit these endpoints. Make sure you can handle the performance of all the scans that are going to come in too. And then after you get over that initial wave and you, and you kind of sort out through all the different pieces and the findings, and then just keep growing your program. Agreed. And I really see them as being an effective force multiplier, right? That will augment an existing internal testing program. So let me switch over to residential security then for a moment. Comcast recently published their 2020 cyber health report, which provides insight on the state of cybersecurity within connected homes, as well as tips for customers protecting themselves. This is an excellent report, by the way, and I suggest all listeners go out there and check it out. I'll leave a link on the show notes. But in the report, I noticed it mentioned Cujo AI technology, which is defined as a continuous learning system that assists in recognizing and preventing attacks. Would you mind explaining that service and how else Comcast is protecting their customers against threats? Happy to, Chris. So we've partnered with Cujo AI to build our advanced security product that we run in our XFi gateways that are in millions of people's homes. So when you turn on your, the advanced security feature in there, it essentially to very basically turns on an intrusion detection, intrusion prevention system in your router. And the cool thing about this is that it's done at the concentrated point of the router and not at the endpoints in the home. Um, because, uh, and this is what, if you read the report and I encourage everybody to do, a lot of your devices in your home are under attack and they're not just your laptop and your phone anymore. We commonly see devices like printers and uh, big one network attack, attached storages, NASes getting hit. Mm -hmm. um, so these devices, they don't even have screens. You don't even really know what they're doing half the time. They're just providing this smart service for you. They're being targeted as well by, by the bad guys. So, you know, you can't go and install any type of security on those devices if it doesn't come from the manufacturer itself. So having a, a, you know, this concentrated point of your network traffic that goes in and out of your gateway to look at there, uh, we can build some security and bolt it onto those products that you're running in your home, your, your smart devices, uh, to give you a little bit more peace of mind in the home. But this is a pretty standard technology that's out in the world too. Um, these, it's no different than like TP-Link Home Care or uh, Circles product or Plume Guard. This is a very new and a great product space that's getting more and more prevalent in, in the, uh, you know, for, for consumers to have in their homes. Kind of like antivirus for your network instead of antivirus for your laptop, if you want to think about it, basically. Mm. But what it's really doing is it's making sure you're not going to bad IP sites. So we check IP reputation on, on endpoints to, to make sure you're not trying to get fished or, you know, known C2 channels. 
It also looks at the behavior of a system. Uh, you know, it'll look at your printer and it'll be like, okay, the printer will check the manufacturing's website once a day for updates or something like that. That's its normal behavior. If it starts to see that veering from that behavior abnormally and be like, oh, this just started, you know, sending traffic to all these different sites or whatever, that's pretty abnormal. We maybe will alert or maybe we'll block depending on the situation there. And the AI comes in because it helps you figure out that normal behavior, right? So the systems are always learning. That's where Cujo comes in. It helps us learn. It helps us define those profiles. And then it helps us protect all the devices in your home. So by turning that on into your router, you're effectively putting protection on every device in your home. And if you saw in the, the, um, the health report, I think you know, the number of devices that people are connecting in their house just keeps getting more and more. And it's not computers that they're, they're putting in there. It's these smart devices, right? You know, yeah, there's probably more gaming consoles, but then we're also seeing smart ovens, smart refrigerators, you know, smart water sprinklers, whatever it is. Um, you know, all these devices that, that now they, they get a Wi-Fi address, they, they, they're connected to your home and, and they're adding more traffic and the more potential you know, risk that can come with those as well. So the cyber health report has a lot of good numbers on how much of, you know, attacks we're seeing in the home, what, you know, what devices are really high target devices. And they're the things you would think of if you've seen these different types of attacks in the past, right? You know, the, the, the Mirai type stuff where right? we want to make sure that, you know, those aren't happening anymore. Uh, I talked about the printers and, the, and then the NASs as well. That's really been a big deal this past year because of work from home. So now everybody's taking their work laptop, their work phone, their work devices out of the nice protected shell of the corporate network that we spent years, you know, protecting and getting, you know, all sorts of tap points and and proxies in place to to make sure we're watching the traffic and make sure people aren't attacking them and firewalls everywhere. And now we're taking them and we're just putting them on our home networks. And hopefully we've got a VPN that goes with it if your companies could handle the VPN traffic. But we're also seeing a lot more zero trust out there too, right? So we don't have those firewalls anymore. So your traffic is going all over the place. And, you know, we got to figure out how to protect that. Having some protection at home is where, you know, our advanced security comes in to help with that. And um, we don't want some other smart device in your home to get popped and then start figuring out how to attack your, your, your exposed SMB port on something or something like that, right? The lateral movement that could start to happen in your home. So, so let's stop to prevent that before it happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's really impressive. And you're saying any type of device with an IP on your network, Cujo AI can monitor. Yep. We're monitoring for it. You can look on our, our website to, to see the types of attacks that we're protecting against on there. Okay. Um, depending on the device. So like, and an iPhone, you know, we're pretty, we know that the behavior of that a lot because we see a lot of them, right? So there's a lot of AI machine learning that's on that. So, so you know what's going on there. That's going to get a lot of protection because we have a good profile uh, against what that should do. And then there's going to be other devices as we see more and more traffic. It's just constantly learning and then it's yeah. constantly protecting. So it's, it's a really cool, cool system. Nice. Yeah, so I typically advise home users to log into their router and locate the list of devices connected to the network and just label them accordingly. You know, you'll find some devices are really easy 
to decipher and know what they are and others aren't. Uh, so having that mapping is important for troubleshooting or performing traffic analysis on a specific device for any reason. So is that something that you would recommend doing as well? It's funny you mentioned that um, to try to make it easier for people to manage their home network, right? Non-technical people. Um, we try to enrich that that MAC address with as much information as we can in our app. So instead of logging into your router, you can actually pull up Comcast app. You can go in there and see, okay, this device is connected and, oh, that's an iPhone 12 or that's this. Instead of seeing, oh, that's some obscure manufacturer's OUI for their MAC address that's in the thing. I have no idea what that is. It's just a MAC address that's on the thing. So because of that, trying to make that easier for regular users to do, you know, the civilians out there that don't have the cybersecurity training that we have, it makes it a lot easier for us too, from a security perspective. So the people that are more security minded are going to see this device join their network and they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, I need to go take a look at this. I have no idea what this is. Instead of saying, oh, that's my kid's new, whatever, they just bought that attached to the network instead. So, so we get that benefit that it's a nice security side effect that we get of just trying to make it a better experience for, for all our customers to use. Beautiful. I love the term civilians, by the way, what else can civilians that have a smart home ecosystem do to protect themselves the best way they can? Yeah. So a couple tips you can do. Um, and these are in our report too, and, and they're pretty obvious, but I'll, I'll say them anyway, use MFA on any, every device you can do it on especially your you know your your high risk transactions like your banking and things like that absolutely use that use whatever MFA you have available the stronger the better so if you can do like an uh, TOTP password you know six digit code out of your authenticator app i would recommend that but if you only have sms definitely use that right any MFA is better than no no MFA I personally, I, I put it on everything. It is annoying sometimes, um, but but it's just it's just you get used to it, right? Along those lines, you should use a password manager too. I think everybody should use password managers. I know LastPass made some changes to their to their password manager recently, but I think you should still have have a password manager so that you can use unique passwords on all your devices, especially when you're buying some, you know cheap IoT device that you needed to create an account for. You don't want to be reusing a password on that that you would be using somewhere else um, for something more important. So unique passwords, MFA, that you know, that that kind of credential, strong credentials is good there. What else? Uh, make sure everything auto updates, uh, patches on its own. You know, make sure that box is checked for auto updates. You know, a lot of times you need that out of band security patch to come in. So you make sure you want to get it as soon as possible before the bad guys can start to operationalize those vulnerabilities. Be careful when you're surfing the internet, um, you know, for any phishing sites or different types of attacks that people use when they're trying to social engineer people with, you know, emails that might look like your, uh, what's the one I get all the time? Um, my Amazon, I think credit card has been suspended or something like that. And and it's terrible looking, but you'd be surprised people will click at that. Just don't do that. Be careful about uh, where you click. If you have the, the ability, you should try to uh, protect your network. So looking into, you know, like a network security device, like I mentioned before, that's a good area to, to, to do, uh, you know, 
put a pitch in here for uh, for Comcast Advanced Security. That's a great one to use if if you if it's available to your listeners. And then just having strong passwords too. You know, I know unique passwords, but then also making sure they're they're strong. You know, the um, not like sixteen characters. You know, letters, numbers, symbols, capital letters, whatever. But maybe using passphrases or you know making them longer than eight characters. You have to think about how risky the 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 account is that you're trying to protect and then you know how strong of a password do you need for that you know I'll, I, you know there are some sites where i don't have as strong of a password just because i'm not too worried about what's going to happen if that site were to get compromised but then when i'm talking about like financial information or health information then i have a much stronger password on those sites oh yeah absolutely the other thing for passwords is i've i've been very sensitive to trying to make, depending on the site, uh, mobile friendly passwords. So mm. things that I can easily enter on a, you know, the uh, mobile, like a, my phone keypad instead of a full keyboard. So, you know, I think about, you know, maybe I don't use the same symbols I would on a keyboard because it's just an extra button push to get into that menu to, you know, yeah, go to the numbers, yeah. go up and go to here. And then it, it takes a lot longer to enter the password. So, so I try to try to sometimes make them mobile friendly where, where I can. Great advice. So I think product security and device hacking is something that many of us do unknowingly. And one example, one common example is rooting your phone. I think we've all been there at one point. If someone is passionate about device hacking or device testing, and wants to understand more about the device threat modeling process or how certain smart device protocols work, what would your advice be to them? Where can they gain that knowledge that would help prepare them for a role within IoT product security? Sure. So just like other types of cybersecurity, they're big fields. There's a lot of attack surface in there. You got to figure out where you want to get started. So you may have, uh, you'd be really strong in web app, you know, or you may be really strong in like Windows domains or, you know, wireless uh, t- attacks. Start with something that you know, or learn one of those more, I think, readily available types of attack techniques. Web app is a good one to do, but understand some sort of penetration testing concepts and techniques. Um, so you can start with the sites like uh, Burp Suite or Pentester Labs, uh, Vulnhub, Over the Wire, good ones that'll test either web or OS vulnerabilities or, or some application vulnerabilities. You know, start with those and then see how many of those different techniques and attacks. Is, and this comes back to the TTPs. Which ones also work against IoT devices, right? Uh, a lot of devices might have like an admin interface to them, right? They, they run a web server. And so you can control the settings and, and things like that. Well, that's a web app. So just hit that. So see what you can extend into that to kind of get started. And from there, then start to look at some more uh, IoT specific types of attacks. You know, unfortunately, YouTube doesn't let you do instructional videos on this sort of stuff. So, so you can't look there. Uh, but look at things like uh, old Black Hat and DEF CON videos, look at B-Sides videos for these types of a- attacks. Look for the write-ups from some of those uh, videos to see sometimes they have some good details in there. 
Um, and they might tell you what type of equipment you need or what tools you need to, to do those types of attacks. And then just try to try to replay those. Try to find some vulnerable hardware to buy off of eBay or something like that. Pick some old router that, you know, never got patched because it was end of life when the vulnerability came out and test on that, you know, see how you do with there. And then if you want, you can branch into more of those protocols and those interfaces that are on those devices that are going to be a little bit more uh, IoT-ish. If you want to get into more of that destructive testing, um, you want to pop the case off, look for the JTAGs, look for the, the, the bus interfaces and see what you can find there. Try to access the, the data storage of it. Try to do firmware analysis, those sorts of things. And uh, you can look for articles on those types of different techniques and attacks on the internet as well. Adify has a good site to get you started on there. And they have a lot of equipment there too you can look at. And then uh, one that I've been a big fan of is uh, if it comes to your town, uh, IoT Village. Uh, you can look at that. It, that's a C- CTF type space, but they have a good good community and, and a, a lot of information there on on IoT security as well. I'm a big fan of the IoT Village, and and um, you know they came to Philly B sides a couple years ago, and that was great to mm-hmm. to do there. And it's a good way to get started and to talk to those people or just see see where where you can learn some of this stuff. Um, and then just buy more vulnerable devices till you get good and then just start hitting other devices that you have and see if you can find stuff. And, you know, to talk about the bug bounty again, see if the, those companies have bug bounties. A lot of the big ones do Comcast does for our hardware. And if you find something, go get paid for it, find it and, and report it to, to those companies. So, and then you, maybe you can fund some more hardware to do more testing <laughs> off of that yeah. too. get that cool SDR or that, that cool, uh, chipset analyzer out there that that you could use it's addicting and you know i was into it for a while and personally i prefer the practical hands-on style of learning versus certification although are you even aware of any iot specific certifications that exist out there not that i'm aware of um i think the good analogy there is to uh kind of like if you're looking at developers and you want to ask them for their, their, their repositories to take a look at the code they've written. Um, it would be the same thing in the hardware space. You can't really fake your way through knowing how to do those types of techniques. Um, so if you can have somebody walk you through it or have them show pictures of something they did, you can just show evidence of that. Then you'll know whether, whether they really have the knowledge or not. So yeah, this is not really a space where I'm looking for a certification. If there are certifications out there, I'd love to 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 look into them more, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but we're really just looking for working knowledge when you're doing these types of attacks. And if you're talking to people, you can kind of get a feel for that from them. Yeah, yeah, agreed. As someone who has been in the security space for a while, when I venture out into public venues, I'm always noticing you know, the unlocked workstations or the unattended POS systems and just being security minded in general, I gravitate to those type of things. So I'm curious to know what type of security related mishaps have you seen in a bar? Sure. So the the point of sale system is the that's the IoT device in <laughs> yeah. the bar or whatever, right? So there's that's always there. Um, you want to look at 
how old the thing is. When you see those old IBM cash registers, you know, you always wonder, you know, I knew they do a good job of keeping them secure if, if they're being kept up to date. Um, so it always makes you wonder what, what they're running. Do they have the physical protection around the ports and, and things like that, that would, would get them a little bit more secure these days. But as far as the bar goes, and I don't think they, they, I see this a lot anymore, but this used to be a lot more common years ago was, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, this concern around information disclosure. Think about when the bartender used to take your credit card when you opened up a tab and just set it up on the wall next to all the other credit cards oh, yeah. for everybody yeah. to see a long time ago. So that practice, if I see that, then I am not opening up a tab or I'm going to ask them, hey, can you put it somewhere else or whatever? And I haven't seen one in a long time because I think everybody's caught on to that. But that's the classic information disclosure, you know, exposed interface of to get some sensitive information out of that that would concern me in a, in a bar. Man, I completely forgot about that. You know, it's been so long since I've physically been in a bar. So, you know, next time I'm in one, I'll have to check for that. So Tony, the bartender, just shut off all the TVs and yelled last call. You got time for one more? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? Hmm. So I think my, the name of the bar would be Bombs Away. And it would have a lot of drinks in it where you would like drop a shot glass into, um, uh, you know, have a drink like a Boilermaker or something like that. And then the signature drink I would call uh, the Logic Bomb. Because if you had too many of them, then your the logic in your brain would stop working. And then maybe we wouldn't have a, it wouldn't be the signature drink, but I'd also have to have an XML bomb as well. Because just to go back to my early pen testing days of what was a big concern back then um, would be that too. So, so any type of cybersecurity with the attack with the word bomb in it, I'd, I'd make a drink around that. Sounds like a war zone, <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll be there. And, right. and uh, are you yeah. are you building that in Philly or where are you going to build that? I got to build it in Philly. I mean, that's really the only place I know. So it yeah. could fit in there. The bar would have one one thing, though, more of a personal peeve of mine, because I do like to drink Manhattans, but I don't like the glass that it comes in. You know, that martini glass when you get them like that. So the bar would not have any martini glasses in them because they just spill way too much. So Maybe if we, if we do offer martinis, they won't come in that glass, though, um, just because of the impracticality of the shape. I know that it opens the drink up more, but you turn around and then half your drinks on the ground. So so uh, I, I won't have those in the bar. Hey, man. Red Solo Cups. They're the way That's to go. That's perfect. These days, there's a lot, of, a lot of thermal insulated glasses that I put my drinks into to keep them, keep them cold for a while. Very cool. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your knowledge and expertise on product security and exhibiting that Comcast continues to ensure all of their customers are secure and enjoy that digital and connected home experience as intended. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Chris. Be safe. You too. Barco patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. 
If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.